Let's stand and take our Bibles tonight very quickly, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I pray that the series in 1 Corinthians has been profitable for you and helpful. We have scheduled on our church calendar to have a married couples conference this September. We're not really sure if it's really going to happen or not with all this safe distancing and things, but... Um, you know, in between there, God knows, and part of, part of expository preaching, we just preach line upon line, precept upon precept, we're just kind of preaching systematically through the Bible, and you can't help when you do preaching like that that you're going to cover subjects that need to be covered. And I'm certain tonight that uh, the subject, as we look at marriage this evening from 1 Corinthians 7, that God has something for us. And uh, this past several days, I've been praying for every married couple in our church, newly married, those who are engaged uh, or plan to get engaged. Those who have been married for a long period of time, regardless of the marriage, I've been praying for every one of them. And uh, this, is a, this is probably one of the chapters that only gets touched on when there's expository preaching for 1 Corinthians 7 because there's some very delicate and sensitive subjects in here. But uh, we do need to preach on these. We need to address it in the context of where we've been at for the last several weeks. And we'll try to be very, very mindful of the, delicacy, the delicateness of some of the topics here. And uh, pray that this evening God will give wisdom to sermon and pray God will help our marriages if we would. 1 Corinthians 7, you read a lot at home where you're at right now. May I encourage every single person, you might say, well, I'm not married, but I'm encouraging every single person, especially a young person, that you take notes and even begin right now praying for your, fair, your, your future marriage partner. And for every married couple tonight, that regardless of how long you've been married, you pray that God would give the improvements and the strengthening, the tightening up of things in your marriage that God would need to have. Verse 1 says, now... Concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me. They wrote to Paul about these matters. Paul said, and bear in mind, he's continuing where we left off last week on purity of the believer and the body of the believer. He says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband has not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one the other, except to be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, the saints and tempt you not for your incontinency. But I speak this by permission and not of commandment. I'm going to preach a message tonight entitled, Saved and Married. Saved and Married. Father, the Bible exalts marriage. You said in your word, marriage is honorable in all. Marriage is found right at the beginning of creation. You're the author of marriage. You're the founder of marriage. And Lord, you want us to respect marriage and revere it and treat it right. Lord, I, I prayed for some things tonight that are fresh, that are very pertinent to our needs. And I can remember just a few years ago, we prayed for more married couples that God, that you'd add to the church by, by marriage within the church and folks that you sent. And certainly, Lord, you've honored that. 
And I'm praying, God, for more marriages that we'll reach. I'm praying, God, in spite of COVID-19, for more married couples and families that will come to Christ. I'm praying for many of our single adults, that, God, they find their marriage partner here in church. I pray they, they pray they get married here in the church. I pray that you meet every need. God, I'm praying, Lord, for marriages to stay together, marriages to be holy, marriages to be happy. God, we pray tonight for the power of God upon what's said and done. Counsel us through your word, I pray. Love us through your word. Instruct us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Paul continues chapter 7 where we left off in chapter 6, verses 19 to 20. The entire context, as we saw last week, very, very, very thorough subject, verses 9 to 20, was on the subject of purity of the believer. How a Christian must live in a society where there's intense pressure to conform to moral temptations. Invariably, if you got saved later on in life, you probably were someone who felt those pressures. As a believer, you feel those pressures. Paul emphasized that believers should not fall into the trap of the heretical teaching of hyper-grace because some of what was going on Paul had to address there was the fact that uh, believers in the church were living in the church like they were before they got saved. They were living in immoral relationships. They had immoral behavior. And some of the drivers behind, if you go back to chapter 6 for a minute, was the phrase found in verse 12. All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. Literally what they, that, that, Greek, that Greek philosophy would mean is that, hey, all things are permissible. I mean, everybody's doing it. And the reasoning most people have was, all things are lawful for me. I mean, it's okay. You're not going to go to jail for it. You're not going to get pay a fine for it. All things are lawful for me. But Paul said this, all things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient or all things are not profitable unto me. And then he went on to say, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. He says, it may be lawful, but I'm not going to become a slave to my desires. I'm not going to become a slave to my to my appetite. And so Paul addressed that need, and he talked about in verse 13 that how people live for their appetites and their desires, and it was kind of a consumption thing. And then he went on by saying in verse 13, he established a principle. He said, the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord the Lord for the body. He ended with the emphasis on the bodies, the temple, the Holy Ghost. As he kind of fixated that image, that thought in their minds, he was telling them, your body is sacred. Your body is the possession of God. You're bought with a price. We've been purchased. The Holy Ghost is inside of us. He lives in us. You're not your own. We are God's chosen possession. Then he said in verse 20, therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God. Now he said all that addressing marrieds, singles, everyone in the church. Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We're to recognize it's more than just a shell. It's more than just flesh. Paul describes it as a temple. The temple of the Holy Ghost. He's still on the subject of the body and purity. And he said all these things to address sin that was in the church to now get into a matter that the Corinthian believers wrote to him about. 
It was almost like they wrote to him and said, Paul, we'd like you to come to our church and we'd like you to come over here and do a married couples conference. Most married couples are concerned for their marriages. Most married couples see a marriage conference as an investment in their marriage. Most folks that go through the church and have learned to read their Bibles and pray and understand God's will for their life, they understand that marriage is not a light thing. That marriage is not just a contract. It's really not even a contract. Marriage is a covenant, a covenant made under heaven. You get to chapter 7, it's a chapter that deals with all the ins and outs about marriage. Over the next few weeks, we're going to see Paul addressing marriage, celibacy, unmarried singles, marriage, divorce, and remarriage. We're not just going to be restricted just to 1 Corinthians 7. We're going to have to go back and look at some Old Testament passages. We're going to have to look and see what God had to say about this matter. So these are needy subjects. Sometimes people ask, you know, what books do you recommend me to read? And there are some good books that are recommended that you read. But I'll be real honest with you. You ought to read your Bible. You ought to know God's mind about the matter. If you tie all the Word of God together, as we'll see tonight, you'll find that the summation of most things you find written in books are found in the Word of God. Our challenge is, is that we let our personalities get in the way. We let our spirit get in the way. That's why I think Paul reminded us in verse 20 of chapter 6, glorify God and in your spirit. You know, you know it's, a, it's, a, it's an important thing that we have a good spirit. Amen? We need a good spirit. A lot of marriages struggle that, that struggle have struggles because there's not a good spirit towards each other. And generally speaking, if there's not a good spirit towards, uh, horizontally towards your spouse, generally speaking, there's not a good spirit between you and God vertically. What you are to your spouse reflects what you think of God. And a lot of times we think about marriage and we think, well, I'm taking God in my marriage. No, God is your marriage. You're married in Christ. You're married for Christ. Marriage is a privilege of God. As we look at chapter 7, Paul starts off by saying, concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me. And this was a long chapter. I mean, it's 40 verses. The, next, the only chapter longer than that is chapter 15, when he deals with the resurrection. I'm not even sure Paul exhausted everything he wanted to say because he realized that there were some of the teachings he had taught them before. And notice in verse 1, we begin tonight by looking at the prohibition. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. And the context he's dealing with here is guarding man and a woman, man especially, guarding their marriage. He starts in verse 2 by saying, nevertheless, avoid fornication. The word fornication that he's addressing here, which we're going we're to use the term immoral behavior, 
is a word that's inclusive of all forms of immoral behavior. We said something about that last week. The word was used predominantly to describe a male prostitute, something very prominent in the culture of that day. Men prostituting their bodies with other men. The word pornea described an immoral relationship between single unmarried people, people of the same sex, people with animals, men with a divorced woman, or divorced woman with a man that was in her husband. And this sin was very rampant in Corinth, as we saw last week. Paul's continuing the same thought. He said, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Did, did he mean there that basically you shouldn't shake her hand? Do you mean you can't pat him on the shoulder? And the word touch is a very strong word in this context. It literally means to attach oneself to. That's almost like the term adhesive. To fasten to. To ignite or to set fire. In other words, the idea of touching is touching in such a way that it Cause an arousal. Genesis, Genesis 20, verse 6 uses this verb, this, this word, as it talks about a Philistine king who wanted to take Abraham's wife, Sarah, as his wife. And God stopped him. And you'll notice in Genesis 20, verse 6, he said, And God said unto him in a dream, Yea, I know that thou didst, didst this in the integrity of thy heart. Listen to this. For I also withheld thee from sinning against me, therefore suffered I thee not to touch her. God knew what that Philistine king had in mind. The same word is used in Proverbs 6.29. So he that goeth into his neighbor's wife, whosoever toucheth her shall not be innocent. It literally means, and has the idea, of having a going beyond the boundary lines of where you should be and actually cohabitating and having carnal intimacy with a person you're not married to. It is good for men not to touch women. Now let me tell you what God is saying through there. What's he saying through that? God is addressing cultural liberties that people are taking today. God is saying here, he's prohibiting premarital intimacy. God is saying here, he prohibits domestic partnerships. You say, but it's legal. It might be legal, but it's not biblical. God did not sanction it. God is enforcing, if you would in this verse, abstinence and celibacy for singles. He's talking here, he's speaking here what is emphasized in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 and 4. You might turn there in your Bible, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 and 4. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. Now there's the word abstain. The Bible teaches and reinforces abstinence. Abstinence is not something that, that came up because of, a, because of a school term. Abstinence is taught in the Bible. We find it right here in chapter 7, verse 1. Celibacy and abstinence is found here. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. He says that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. Now that takes us back to chapter 6, verse 18. He says flee fornication. 
Run from the enticement of advertising and social media, that, uh, social media images that seek to allure you. Run from friendships like Hira, who moved on, on his friend Judah to sin. Or Jonadab, who encouraged Amnon to sin. Run from being naive to the allurement of moral temptation. Run from being in a compromising situation where you're not in the company of Christians who will keep you morally strong. Run from being vulnerable to your desires. Hey, listen, tonight, we have to understand, he said, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, let me give a challenge tonight. First, I want to challenge our high school and college graduates. In college, you're living on campus or off campus. There are strong temptations for single people to cohabitate. To be friends with benefits, as they say, which is a terrible term. I want to challenge you to glorify God in your body and your spirit by vowing to keep yourself pure and abstaining from carnal intimacy. I want to challenge you to do that. I want to challenge all of our singles in our church where the temptations are great, where you might have co-workers or two who talk about their stuff. I want to challenge our singles tonight to glorify God in your body and your spirit by living in abstinence and trusting God for the spouse that you want, the spouse that God wants to give you until you're married. Paul said there's a prohibition. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. Secondly, would you notice verse 2? Paul gives us a priority. Nevertheless, avoid fornication. Let every man have his own wife. Let every, every woman have her own husband. Paul is emphasizing biblical marriage. He's actually going to get really into this here. He's going to talk a whole lot more here about marriage than he did in the other epistles. Biblical marriage. Marriage as God designed it. I'll call your attention tonight if you'll turn to Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 to 6. I want you to see the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word of God, the Logos, Jesus himself, what he has to say about marriage. Because Jesus realized that after God the Father gave what was given in Genesis chapter 2, he saw man pervert marriage. He saw man, the culture, pervert marriage. And as Jesus is speaking there to that Roman culture, marriage had been greatly perverted. And in Matthew 19, verses 3 to 6, the Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? They wanted to trap Jesus. They wanted to ask, their, their intent on this matter was to ask Jesus, Can you, is, is it okay for a man to divorce his wife? Now we're going to look at two schools of thought that were among even the rabbis back in those days when I get into this in the next one or two, uh, two messages. These two different thoughts were dealt with this matter of divorce. And Jesus had to deal with this issue. And he dealt with this scripture because he is the word of God. And he answered and said unto them, notice this, have you not read? And I'm going to park there tonight. That's our problem. We don't read the Bible. We want to know what, what, what about this and what about that, but we're not reading the Bible. He says, have you not read? And he was talking to men who were supposed to have been scholars of those days. They were scribes or lawyers, if you would, men who should have known the word of God. Have you not read? And he refers to Genesis 2, 24 and 25. Notice who he said, have you not read? And he knew God, because Jesus knows all things, 
He knew where our culture would denigrate to. That he which has made them at the beginning, notices, made the male and female. Distinctions. Distinctions. God made you one, not the other. And said, for this cause, God had marriage in mind, companionship, consolidation. For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife. They twain shall be one flesh, wherefore they are no more twain. You're not two people living in the same house, so you're just not cohabitating. You're one. You're one flesh. We've got to get that in our minds. If you're struggling your marriage tonight, let me tell you, you've got to get in your mind. You're not two, you're one. What therefore God has joined together, that's God. What God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Now let me give you some thoughts this evening. Biblical marriage, number one, is scriptural. It's scriptural. I challenge engaged couples somewhere along the way as they go through counseling. Look up every verse of scripture that deals with marriage. Look at all the married couples in the Bible. I preached a message. I'll probably teach it again in the Heirs Together class somewhere too soon. I, I preached a message to our classes in the past, a homebuilders class back, in the, back when we were getting started called the Adam Family. I looked at other couples in the Bible. And I, 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 we, we looked at Achille and Priscilla. We looked at Abraham and Sarah. We looked at Isaac and Rebecca. We looked at Joseph and Mary. Genesis 2.24, Matthew chapter 19, give us the word of God regarding marriage. Do you notice something very interesting? If you've got your finger, 1 Corinthians 7.2. He says, let every man devoid fornication. Let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. Now, I want you to underscore that. Your own wife, your own husband. Gentlemen, your wife is your wife and not any other man's wife. Your wife is your responsibility. Your wife, you're to be her leader. Your wife, you're to be the priest of the household. Your wife, you're to be a godly man. Your wife, you're to be a man of God in your home. Let every man have his own wife. But let every woman have her own husband. It doesn't matter, ladies, if you're on the job site and you've got a, you've got a boss that is male and he might be a, more articulate than your husband. He may be more intelligent than your husband. He might, have, he might be more adventurous than your husband, but he's not your husband. He's not your husband. The word for wife is very interesting because of what we see in same-sex marriages and things today. The word wife is the word, is the word gyne, G-Y-N-E. We get our word gynecologist from that. Doctor of the woman, a female doctor. The word for husband in the Greek always refers to man-male. The scriptural marriage is this. The scriptural marriage is this. God brings them together. 
You need to know not based on feeling. You need to know that things are lining up according to the Word of God. If your dream list for a husband and wife is materialistic, I would challenge you today to realize those materialistic things may not match up with the Word of God. And at the same time, you don't twist the Word of God to make it fit what you want. God must be in it. God must be glorified and honored in that marriage. And it's hard because you're two different people raised by two different families, two different influences. You've got a lot of different things. And so it's going to be a blending and merging together of two homes. But the Bible says, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother. Now, you're not abandoning your parents. That is not what that's talking about there. In fact, if anything, you ought to be more loving to your parents than you were before. But it is saying you are now building your own home. Now, let me throw this into you here. When it says leave father and mother, that means, that means your siblings too. That means your siblings too. That means... As we look at verse 25 of Genesis 2, the man and the woman were naked, they were not ashamed. You need to keep things in your own home. You need to work things out in your own home. You don't bring your, your laundry list to your other family members, and therefore, because of that, you create a level of disrespect for your, for your spouse towards others. I mean, that becomes a problem. Now, if your siblings have a problem with your spouse, you deal with them on that level. You keep your spouse out of that. But I'm going to tell you tonight, the Bible is very specific. You and your home need to build your home. You need to remove yourself from the emotional attachments, the financial attachments, and all the, and I'm not, and, you know, and that's not saying that parents can't help their kids and, and kids can't ask their, but it's saying this, that you're not relying on your parents to do everything for you. You're building your own home. Ladies, I hope that you'll take some time, especially single ladies. There's a litany of things I tell the single ladies that are, are very important. My wife and I go over that you need to look at that are very, that are very important that you, you look at before you get emotionally involved. Guys, the same thing. You need to, there's a litany of things that we give you that you don't, before you get emotionally involved there. Biblical marriage is spiritual. Notice, secondly, biblical marriage is spiritual. The spirit of the marriage is what makes us strong. Therefore, glorify God in your body, your spirit, which are God's. What does that mean then, Pastor Fong? Well, spiritual marriage. Wives submitting themselves to their own husbands. Husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church. A husband loving his wife as himself, and a wife seeing that she reverenced her husband. Spiritual marriage is built on Jesus. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Spiritual marriage implies what Peter said in 1 Peter 3. A woman who's adorning is the hidden man of the heart, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. A spiritual marriage implies a man who gives honor to his wife as unto the weaker vessel. That you see yourselves as heirs together the grace of life. You're different, you have unique roles, but God sees you as equal because you're heirs together the grace of life. You both need God's grace to help you to grow and bless your marriage. 
Spiritual marriage implies husband and wives not biting and devouring one another. You can't talk about a walk in the spirit if you're biting and devouring one another. Spiritual marriage does not give place to Satan. Spiritual marriage has kindness and forgiveness embedded in it. Let me tell you tonight, the Bible does not recognize what, what lawyers call irreconcilable differences. That's not found in the Bible. The Bible does not acknowledge irreconcilable differences. The Bible recognizes forgiveness and resolution. A scriptural marriage, a biblical marriage is special. It's spiritual, it's scriptural, but it's special. It's God's answer for loneliness. It's God's answer for filling the gaps of your life. Whether you want to admit it or not, best thing happened to you is that God gave you your husband, gave you your wife. You know why? God compensated for your weaknesses or God made your strengths better. God made you a better person because of your spouse. Now, it doesn't matter if other people don't like your spouse. And there's some people just overly opinionated. They have something bad to say about everyone or, and they tell other people about it. It doesn't matter what they have to say about it. What really matters is that you have a good opinion about your spouse. It is finding your purpose and being a helper to your spouse. Listen to what the Bible says. Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing and obtaineth favor of the Lord. Hey, marriage is special. In marriage, we are advocates and not adversaries. In marriage, we are companions and not competitors. Listen, when you have two professionals in the same home, you just got to realize you're not competing with each other. Don't Use the income gap or income differences or the differentials in your degrees and all that to compare one another. You came together not because of profession. You came together because of love. We're one and not two. Two become one and two are better than one. Listen to this. You need to be in love and not inmates. Amen? Biblical marriage is steadfast. Notice what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19. What God has joined together, let not man put asunder. In other words, he's saying there, that word put asunder is don't, don't divorce. In verse 10, chapter 7, notice verse 10. And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. I think that's pretty clear. Uh, notice in verse 39, that he says in verse 39 here, the wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will, only in the Lord. Now, I just want to remind you, the Bible still has, in the, it still has one of the commandments, thou shalt not kill. So you're thinking about, wait till my husband's dead. The Bible does say, thou shalt not kill. A biblical marriage is superior. It doesn't mean your marriage is better than other people's marriages. And it doesn't mean you use your marriage as Ananias as a fire to take advantage of things. No. You know what, what, why it's superior? Because it's a picture of Christ and the church. You can't think of a more beautiful picture or analogy to compare marriage to than Christ, his love for the church. Biblical marriage is a testimony. It's a witness of God's love in our lives. So Paul starts off in verse 1, he gives us a prohibition. Verse 2, he gives us a priority, but notice in verses 3, three to 5 as we look at this last point, and we need to get into that a little bit tonight. I want you to notice the practice in marriage. Now remember, Paul has been dealing with immoral behavior and questions regarding marriage. And Paul addresses the proper place of physical intimacy in marriage. That's why he wrote this. Because sometimes people are groping and trying to find through the Word of God, what does the Word of God say about it? Right here in chapter 7, he deals with it here. 
He tells us about rights and responsibilities. Notice, first of all, as he deals with the practice in marriage here, as he deals with the matter of physical intimacy within marriage, which is a privilege only for marriage and in marriage. He talks, he begins here by helping us understand the reasoning. Remember, as I said last week, men, the common practice in that society, men were having extramarital activities they should not have had. They were basically committing the sin of adultery. They were consorting with harlots at night or other worse relationships outside of marriage. Then there was extreme, those who got saved, they considered intimacy within marriage as being equated to intimacy with someone who's not your spouse. They said, well, I shouldn't be doing that. And so they subscribed to the ascetic mind of thinking, asceticism. And that wasn't good. Then you had on the, the woman's side, saved women were thinking the same thing. Thinking, when well, my husband lives like that, and we look at the society, maybe this is not right. And so she did not participate in physical intimacy with her husband. And then on the other end, you had women who got saved, and their husbands weren't saved. And they were good servants. In fact, they were such good servants, they served everybody. Back in those days, they went to the jails and served people. They brought meals to the widows. They did all these things. And these women were gone from, from, day, from sunlight to dust. I mean, they weren't home. And the biggest complaint a lot of husbands had was that my wife is never home. In fact, biggest complaint back in the day, you can look it up yourself, they, the, the church historians would tell us that, that the biggest complaint they had about Christianity, they felt like Christianity was breaking up marriages. And it wasn't Christianity breaking marriages, but just all this incorrect thinking because the culture itself was so depraved. And the culture itself allowed for things that should never happen. And Paul realizes they're writing to these men, these people need a lot of help. And so Paul's writing here because there were, there were, there were, there were marriages in place where there was deprivation, there was frustration. And so Paul starts off here, he gets in verse 3, talks about the responsibility. He says, let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. Now the word render is a very interesting word. It refers to something that is promised under an oath. It has the idea of paying off something that's due. Like repaying a debt. The Bible's telling us here in verse 3 that husbands and wives have an obligation that never gets paid off, if I can say it that way. Where through the boundaries and the beautifulness of what God created in this privilege to nurture, to care for, express, and as he used the words, a good phrase, do benevolence, which means goodwill. of fulfilling their responsibility and duty to one another through their intimacy. 
Paul didn't have to go much in detail, neither do we, because it's very clear what he's saying there. I'm a little concerned. I'm just going to tell you this in some of the books out there. Some of you are collecting books or interested in books. You better be even very, very careful of so-called Christian authors who are writing explicit things in these chapters there. Be honest with you, they make, they, it ought to make you blush when you read some of that. And honestly, it's short of being soft pornography, and honestly, you shouldn't be reading it. And Paul is just saying here that, you know, husbands and wives have responsibility to each other. They should be in a romantic mindset, a heart filled with affection and desire. Not letting schedules get in the way, other preferences get in the way, things you want to do get in the way, realizing that, they're, that just as much as you plan exercise time, as just as much as you plan meal time, you have to realize you've got to schedule things in order for your marriage to be satisfying. Do benevolence means the goodwill or kindness that you express to your spouse through the privilege of intimacy. Then notice in verse 4, he talks about the reservation. The wife has not power of her own body. Now, that's one of the things about our culture that's very, very hard to grasp. The wife has not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise, also, the husband has not power of his own body, but the wife. Do you know when you make, you know, in marriage, what's unique about marriage? It's a covenant made before God that can only be broken through death. You and I are not, you are pledging all of yourself to your spouse. When Paul said in Thessalonians, the God of peace sanctify you holy, spirit, soul, and body. You don't segregate the three. That's all of you. We call it a trichotomy, but that's all of you. And you bring all of you into the marriage. The word power means authority. It's not the word dunamis, it's the word exousia. When you get married, you have assigned your rights to your spouse. Your, your spouse has power over you, authority over you, and vice versa in that context, in this context. But it does not mean you take advantage of or abuse your spouse or do something wicked to your spouse. That's not what that's implying there. It means you seek to promote a satisfying relationship. The completeness in marriage is underscored through mutual commitment in this area. Listen to some things Solomon says just to help us understand that. He said in Proverbs, let her satisfy thee at all times. Be thou ravished always with her love. Listen to what he said later on in Proverbs 31. The heart of her husband does safely trust in her, and he shall have no need of spoil. Look at what he says here. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. Now, if you're holding back on your spouse in anything, this verse right here reminds us that you made a covenant. 
not an agreement, a covenant. You pledged before God and before witnesses. You sealed it by your vows. You sealed it with rings. You belong to each other. You're your spouses forever. And you've committed the custody, the care of who you are and what you are to that spouse. Your spouse is to love all of you. You're to love all of your spouse. Paul, as we close tonight, look at verse 5. In this practice, he says there needs to be a removal. Defraud ye not the other. Defraud ye not one the other. That means don't rob, spoil, withdraw, or hold back. Except to be with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again, the Satan tempt you not fear incontinency. There's an expectation. Physical intimacy should not be withheld. It should not be a weapon. And by doing so, as he talks about Satan tempting you, you put your spouse at great risk. At great risk. Especially if they're not a very spiritually strong person. And even if they are, they can still fall. You put them at great risk of falling to the snare of sin outside the marriage. There's expectation. He said, defraud ye not one the other. That's a pretty strong word. Then he gives us the exception. Except to be with consent. And that word consent is a very interesting word. It's the word symphonos, where we get our word symphony from. He said, except to be with consent. In other words, you both agree, there may be a crisis in your home, in your life, or spiritual time, where one or both of you will be giving yourself to fasting and prayer. Now, let me, let me give you a comment on this. This means... Regardless of the matter, women, whichever has the greatest, the greatest conviction about this, number one, you don't go off and fast and pray and leave your wife feeling or your husband feeling somewhat abandoned. The Bible tells us that there's a place for that, but you do it with consent. I think the whole concept here, there needs to be mutual consent. One of our, one of our weaknesses in many marriages that we counsel with is the area, the problem of there isn't mutual consent. They find it very difficult to agree on things. They, they, they just have their, you know, walls go up and discussions go on and discussions turn to argument. It's this matter of mutual consent. That's why this balance between love and submission and reverence to, there's that fine balance you have to learn to grow into. He says the exception here is when both agree that one or both will give themselves to, a, to prayer and fasting when it's agreed upon, during that period of time that you can come apart from intimacy because you realize you're trying to focus on something in your lives there. But he says this, you need to come together again. 
You're to plan to come together. You're not to punish one another. You're not to hurt one another. You're not to withdraw from one another. But you're seeing this as an opportunity maybe to help your spirit to get, become a better person there. Paul leads into this passage by saying, you're bought with a price. You know, before you entered into marriage, you lived a life realizing as a single person, you belong to God. When you married, not only did you belong to God, you married someone else who belongs to God. And as a husband, you're responsible for your wife's welfare and much of what I've just said in this last point deals with helping your wife emotionally, helping your wife with her security, and the vice versa, wives, that you entered into this marriage realizing that your husband belongs to you, and your, your involvement here is to help him with his insecurity and to help him with his needs and help him to understand who he is and understanding that his focus should be on you. I mean, when you look at all these things, when we follow through what Paul says here, these, these things that are, these principles are given here, it solves a lot of marital issues that we deal with. Now, I'm going to ask you a question as we close. Do you have a good spirit about your marriage? Do you have a good spirit towards your spouse? Whosoever findeth a wife findeth a good thing. And obtaineth favor of the Lord. Solomon said, Ecclesiastes, rejoice with the wife of thy youth all the days of thy life. She'll do him good and not evil all the days of her life. The heart of her husband does safely trust in her so that he shall have no need of spoil. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. Our marriages are a gift from God. A godly marriage, a Christian marriage, is a shining light in that neighborhood. It's a recognition that there's a saved couple there that represent Jesus Christ. And for the sake of this message, they represent Heritage Baptist Church. Nobody in that neighborhood should question your love for the Lord and your love for each other. Saved and married. They go together. They're not separate. And where you and your spouse have many differences... You're working to become one. All the insecurities of being single, he said, therefore for this cause. Your marriage is your cause. Your marriage is your ministry. Remember this. The church is not your bride. The wife God gave you is your bride. The husband God gave you is your husband. Honor the Lord in your marriage. Promote a holy marriage. Because if you have a holy marriage and a healthy marriage, you invariably have a happy marriage. Let's honor the Lord tonight. I think one of Paul's greatest delights was to kill him, Priscilla. Because they were find the mention. They're not separated. It's always together. They love Paul. Paul loved them. But Paul never got between their marriage. Paul promoted their marriage. Paul encouraged them. Paul trained them. 
I want to encourage all of our married couples, especially the newer married couples. Help me be the backbone of our church. Satisfying marriages, happy marriages, godly marriages. Ladies, be keepers at home. Love your own husbands. Husbands, be good husbands. Take care of your wife. Be godly men. Undergird things. If you're in a marriage where one of you is just all over the place, it's time to come home. Be home. Be at home, not just physically. Be at home spiritually, emotionally, and mentally. Be at home. Except the Lord build a house. They labor in vain that build it.